I'm Paul Levinson, and welcome to Light On, Light Through, episode 114, otherwise known as 114. The village voice goes silent. Well, I couldn't let 2018 come to an end in my podcasting without taking note of the passing, the going out of business, the closing of the shutters of the Village Voice here in New York City. Once upon a time, and not all that long ago, the hottest, coolest, in-sync weekly newspaper in town. This, it's closing, this past September, was the last act in a decline which saw the voice being given away for free on the streets of New York in a desperate attempt to boost circulation to staunch declining ad revenue, and in addition to that going completely online just last year, that was to save the pretty high costs of actually producing a paper newspaper. Now, though I've long read much more online than on paper, I hate to see any newspaper go under. And The Voice's Passing has special meaning for me since it was the first place to publish anything that I'd written. That's something I take for granted and I've taken for granted for decades now, but boy, it meant a lot to me when that first happened. And in fact, actually, my first three publications were in the Village Voice. That was way back in the early 1970s. In September 1971, I was putting the finishing touches on my LP, Twice Upon a Rhyme, in Mario Rossi's recording studio, located way, way, way at the tail end of Brooklyn. I have to say that in 2019, Old Bear Records will be reissuing that LP along with a brand new album by me of my science fiction related songs and I'll certainly put up a podcast about that here when it happens sometime in the next oh I guess four or five or six months but back in September 1971 Ed Fox, Peter Rosenthal and I who were the three main people that made Twice Upon a Rhyme Ed and I wrote a lot of the music and did uh, all the singing. Pete Rosenthal played guitar, more than one guitar, on every song. Anyway, we all lived up in the Bronx back then. And on the clacking train ride out to Brooklyn, a copy of the Village Voice, then in just its 16th year of publication, was usually pretty close at hand. One night, I read a typically tone-deaf, dyspeptic review by Robert Criscow in The Village Voice of Paul McCartney's second solo album, Ram. I was sufficiently infuriated that next day I pounded out a lengthy letter to the editor on my electric portable Smith Corona typewriter, stained with coffee and orange juice but still working. 
and I sent it off to the Village Voice. I doubt I even made a copy, and I pretty much forgot about it. I didn't really expect to see it published there in the letters column. I never had a letter to the editor published anywhere back then in 1971. And you know what? My expectations were right, literally. I eagerly grabbed a copy of The Voice the next week. The first page I turned to was the letters page, and nothing whatsoever was there by me or about Paul McCartney. But a few days later, by now it was early October, I found a letter from The Voice to me in my mailbox. A letter and a check. I looked at the check first, $65. Then I looked at the letter. It was from Diane Fisher, one of the Village Voice's main editors. She said she assumed it would be okay with me if The Voice published my letter as an opinion piece in its Taking Issues section and paid me 65 bucks for it, for which a check was enclosed. It was better than okay. I was flat out thrilled. Now, the release of Twice Upon a Rhyme on Happy Sad Records, a record company created by Ed Fox and me after two or three major labels turned down our album and we were not interested in shopping it around for what could have been years. But that release was still a year away. And back in 1971, I still thought of myself as a singer and a songwriter, not an essay writer. But in retrospect, the publication of my letter in the Village Voice as an essay called A Vote for McCartney on October 21st, 1971, I happen to remember that exact date, was a turning point in my life. Now, back then, I'd imagined that Paul McCartney would contact me after reading the article, maybe get me signed to Apple Records, all of those good things. None of that happened. But what did happen is I began getting far more recognition as a columnist for the Village Voice on the strength of just that one publication than I'd received or would be receiving in ensuing years as a singer and songwriter. Now, my second essay in the Village Voice, entitled Murray the K in Nostalgia's Noose, was published a little over a year later to the very day that my first essay was published in The Voice. And that second essay was published in the October 26, 1972 issue. That one I'd sent in as an essay, not a letter, to Diane after Tina, my wife, not quite then. We got married in 1976. So back then this was Tina, my girlfriend, and I had heard and loved Murray the K's return to New York's airwaves on the July 4th, 1972 weekend. Diane, or someone at The Voice, had taken 
that title from a line in my generally very flattering essay, which said Murray needed to be careful that, quote, nostalgia doesn't become a noose around his neck. That was just a sort of alert to Murray that he needed to do more than nostalgia. That was a minor point in my article. So I learned an important lesson then, by the way, that you never know what an editor is going to do as far as a title to your essay. So you have to be careful about every line you put into an essay that you send into a publication. But Murray managed to track down my phone number. No doubt the Village Voice gave it to him. He was delighted with the article. I received a call from him the very evening that that issue of The Voice hit the streets. He told me how much he appreciated my essay and offered me a job as a producer on his new NBC radio show. I took it and even wrote and recorded a song, Murray the K's Back in Town, which he played on his show. Now... Before I end this podcast, I'll play that for you right here so you can listen to it. Anyway, by the time my third and final article was published in The Village Voice, and now we're talking about its July 4th, 1974 issue, I was already back at school completing my B.A. in journalism at New York University after a long break as a student from the classroom. My article about Murray the K had brought me to NBC, where, after Murray left, I began working as a producer for the legendary Wolfman Jack. And after he left, I wrote an essay about his departure from New York. And Diane not only published it, but this time kept my title. Yay, Wolfman Hits the Road Jack. Now, I'd go on academically in the few years ahead to walk up the street to the New School for Social Research after getting my B.A. from New York University. At the New School, I earned an M.A. and began reading everything I could by and about Marshall McLuhan. Then I went back down the street to NYU's Media Ecology program to get my Ph.D., which I earned before the end of the decade. And by then, I'd already started teaching at various universities, including actually as an adjunct at Fordham University, where I've been teaching as a full-time professor since 1998. So the rest, as they say, was history my history. Now, I did have two more significant interactions with Robert Christgau in that decade, the 1970s. One came in the mid-1970s when he rejected an article I'd submitted about the evolution of the Wizard of Oz in rock music, at that time culminating in Elton John's excellent Yellow Brick Road. Chris Gow, unfortunately for me, had been put in charge of all the music pieces in the Village Voice, and I received a letter from him saying that my essay was very well written, thank you, but said nothing of any importance. Well, thank you, I guess, for that too, right? No check was included in that letter. 
Undaunted, I sent the article to the Soho Weekly News, a more local kind of voice, which focused more on popular culture than politics. It was just down the street from where the Village Voice was then. They accepted the article. They sent me a pen and ink drawing to go with the article, but before they had a chance to publish it and pay me for the article, guess what? I received a letter from, believe it or not, Robert Criscow explaining that he also was a consultant or something or other for the Weekly News, the Soho Weekly News, and he was advising them not to publish my article. So it goes. The Soho Weekly News was gone by the early 1980s. But Chris Gow, he continued at The Voice, which I continued to read despite his caustic reviews of music that I love. He also published somewhere, I don't recall whether it was in The Voice or someplace else, an idiotic criticism of Phil Oakes, a fabulous folk singer, in many ways better than Bob Dylan. All Chris Gow talked about was the ham-handed way in which Oakes played guitar. He mentioned nothing about Oakes' beautiful voice, not to mention his lyrics. But, you know, the Village Voice uh, had a lot of other people in addition to Chris Gow. They also had Nat Hentoff, as passionate a champion of the First Amendment as ever there was, and Ron Rosenbaum, who could write a riveting, lengthy essay that you just couldn't put down about Mayor Abe Beam. He took boring to a whole new level. So Rosenbaum writing a riveting essay about Beam was a masterful accomplishment. Anyway, I consider myself privileged to have been in the pages of this remarkable conversation which captured the times we're in. It fanned and extended them. And it made me even prouder than I was to be a New Yorker. The Light on Light Through Podcast. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that little retrospective on the Village Voice and its importance to my life in those, to me, very interesting and significant ways. What I'm going to do for you now is play that song, Murray the K's Back in Town, that I recorded way back in the early 70s when I was working for Murray as a result of his reading my article about him in the Village Voice. And that would be the second article that I ever had published in my life. And by the way, on the lightonlightthrough.com webpage, you'll find a link to a whole series of videos about Murray the K. I didn't put up that collection of links. If you're interested in Murray the K, check out that collection of videos about him. And after Murray the K's back in town, you'll hear a couple of my promos for some of my science fiction novels. And with that, I'll promise you once again, I'll be back here soon with another episode of Light On, Light Through. In the meantime, enjoy. Five long years of noise and static, no one else could fill his voice. Of a kitchen 
AD. She ripped the paper in half, then ripped the halves, then ripped what was left again into bits and pieces of history that could have been. Sierra Waters had read once that, years ago, it was thought that men made love for the thrill, while women made love for the sense of connection it gave them. Curled up with a good book says, Sierra Waters is sexy as hell. You can find out more about The Plot to Save Socrates by Paul Levinson at theplottosavesocrates.com. Paul Levinson spilled code about an ancient biotech war raging on in secret for centuries. 